You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Hello, friends and fellow renegades. This week, a refreshing change. As my colleague Emily Sims as a master's in planning, uh, takes over the show. She's interviewing Sophie Starup, who's a lecturer in urban planning and design at Xi'an Jiatong Liverpool University. This is essentially an insider's account to the formation of Transurban, uh, the CityLink project, and then on towards the Western Distributor what uh, forces drove that. Uh, I want you to listen to this uh, with a sense of empathy to see what the government were thinking at that time. I'm sure you'll have a number of questions. Let's step into the interview with Emily Sims and Dr. Sophie Starup. I actually came and heard a lecture in Jenny Day's class that you gave. Uh, I was at Economies in Cities of Region. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And I remember it being really fascinating at that time. So um, Mm. I thought it would be good to talk to you about the PPP stuff. What I'm interested in talking to you mostly about is the nature of um, the public-private partnerships in these mega projects like the Westgate Tunnel. Yep. And also um, how these kinds of coalition agreements get made between government and private sector. So the kind of... Mm -hmm. If you have any kind of understanding about that, as I remember at that time with that lecture, you were talking about being involved in the CityLink project itself. Yeah, well, well, not actually involved, but I was I was involved with the um, privatisation of the electricity industry. Yeah, and that was why I got a lot of really close interviews with people from the CityLink project because people knew me because I worked in the same government and. And so I managed to talk to Alan Stockdale and people like that about that project quite closely. And also we managed to get an interview with the CEO of Transurban, Kim Edwards, you know, who was the first CEO of the of the of Transurban. I suspect things have changed a lot since that exercise. That project came about from nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, Transurban was nothing. Macquarie Bank was nothing. There was no structures. And so a lot of what went on in CityLink, and I think one of the reasons why the government, I mean, I know a lot of people talk about CityLink is a serious problem because they're making lots of money, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I mean, as far as I understand the structure of the ownership of CityLink, which is not very deep, but there are a lot of normal investors in CityLink. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people, normal people, not not you know the one percent, but normal people who have invested in CityLink and 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 it's been a good outcome for them, and that's something that's changed. So you know when they first put the conglomerate together to do CityLink, nobody knew what they were doing. The Macquarie Bank was really in its sort of infancy; they were sort of figuring it out as they went along, and the whole thing took years and years and years. And and in a lot of ways, that probably made it a much better project and a much you know, it allowed for concerns like equity and things like that to be creeping into the project because there was a t- almost two-year process in which the government and people like Alan 
what's Helen's other name? The guy who used to head up um, infrastructure in in the Department of Infrastructure. I mean, he was he was a guy who had been around for 30, 40 years. He's died now. He really wanted to understand how this whole thing was going to work. There were people trying to understand, you know, what would be Transurban's agenda? How was the government going to understand that? How was it all going to work? Would these agendas work together? So there was a lot of work done to deal with the information asymmetry, which sits behind a lot of these transactions. And I think in in that respect, the the contract, if you read the contract, which you can, I mean, I don't know if you've bothered, but no, I haven't it, bothered. It, it does in it does in fact, you know, it's in the public domain, the contract. So you know, you can you can acquire the contract. I have a copy of it, and uh, and it irritates me actually when people talk about you know the Citilink contracts like this or that or thing, and it's this terrible, you know, it, it has all these terrible clauses in it. I mean, it doesn't. What it has in it is it says, okay, we understand the business model that Transurban's functioning on and the assumptions that have been made of how they're going to make money. And the government has the power to completely stuff that up, right? I mean, if you built another road that was the exact same road Mm -hmm. that was free, for example, that would completely stuff it up. So basically the contract is written to say, okay, we've said Transurban will you know, probably have these kinds of traffic volumes and it will function like this. And if we do things over time that make big changes to that, either by putting a lot of traffic onto Transurban, so if we give a lot of more traffic to Transurban, then they should pay the government. And if if we produce roads that massively decrease the amount of traffic on on Transurban's roads, then we should we should pay them. This model needs to work, right? I mean, that was how it was... The contracts rations. Now you don't see that in contracts very well anymore. Right. You know that kind of relationship was never built in most cases, and what you have now is companies coming in and saying, "Well, we refuse to even function within that kind of model. We want to say, okay, in order to build the road, it's going to cost this much. We need a return on our investment of X. So you should pay us." A franchise cost, right? A cost for the road, not a cost for providing a service, not you know a pay-by-car thing. Yes. That, in my view, is completely crazy. You know, if you're going to pay for the road anyway, why not? This is what the what the Danes talk about. If you're going to pay for the entire cost of the road anyway, why not borrow the money at three percent? which a government can do. So why would you borrow the money at this expensive rate? Yeah, so let's go back to the rationale for CityLink, what you spoke about just now in terms of this kind of pioneering type agreement between government and private sector and then how that's changed over time. That would be really interesting, I think, to our listeners. So in terms of the early days of CityLink and that... uh, you know, transurban coming from nothing. Can you expand on some of the ways in which that PPP was different to what perhaps is being proposed in terms of Westgate Tunnel or in other parts of the world where the PPP is? So, like, what was the, the economic and political context and rationale at that time 
Um, for example, Jeff Kennett's come out in terms of talking about Western Distributor Project here in Melbourne and said that mm. the climate no longer exists to rationalise a project like CityLink. If you, you wouldn't do CityLink now, you would you would borrow government bonds or such mm. because mm. the economic climate and the political climate's changed. Do you think he's right? I mean, there were a number of different contexts. And one of the things was that um, at the time that CityLink was written, the government was wanting to bring in private sector funds and neoliberalism was at its peak. I mean, you know, the, the, well, not near, it's not right, right to call it neoliberalism, but the, the concept of private participation in government was at its peak. What was driving a lot of Kennett and, and Stockdale's view of the world? I mean, Alan Stockdale quite clearly has said in multiple different ways that his view is that the private sector does things better than the public sector, basically in anything. Mm-hmm. And that was his view. I mean, you know, and that, and that was the Thatcher view. And that, that way of thinking, it was very much how what the government wanted to do was enable that, right? And, and frankly, I think there are, there are network implications in roads. But if you have a, a situation where the government has no money, the government has no permission to borrow money, which was the situation that they were in, right? So, and to some extent, that's still the case in Australia, right? Which is ridiculous, we agree. But if we're talking about the conversation as opposed to reality, which let's face it, politics is never talking about reality, right? At that time, the conversation was, Victoria is massively in debt and unmanageably so, and we have a very large number of assets which are costing us far more to maintain, like to maintain the debt of, than is warranted given their value, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like owning a house that's worth $5 million and not being able to pay the mortgage. You sell the house and buy a smaller one, yep. right? You know, <laughs> so... That sort of the ba- was the basic thinking in the government at the time. And that's why we were privatising the electricity industry and so on, right? And so it was like, look, we're massively in debt. SECV hasn't paid its dues, like has not been able to pay down its debt for years. So we should sell the assets and start again. You know, it was this kind of thinking, right? And frankly, there were some benefits to doing that. You know, I mean, the Victorian energy industry has not collapsed. And as I have said in other forum, that one of the benefits of doing that was it extracted the government from a massive attachment to coal. Yeah. Right? So, you know, I mean, when SECV was owned by the government. The government was responsible for more than 22,000 workers' jobs in coal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were going to get a situation of the government turning around going, we shouldn't have so much brown coal being burned when pigs flew (laughs) under those circumstances, right? I mean, it just was never going to happen, right? Mm. So, frankly, the government has actually positioned itself through through the privatisation of the electricity industry to be much freer to make decisions that we might now want to make. Mm. Whether they were, I mean, they weren't thinking about that at the time, but I could, you know, sitting there as a level three person dealing with this project, project, I could see that that was a benefit that was going to 
arise because there was much more flexibility suddenly. And that, and that thinking was there in lots of different ways. You know, the, the idea of steering, not rowing. Yeah. Right? I mean, so coming back to CityLink, um, so the, the conversation about CityLink was, okay, there is a true economic extractable value out of building CityLink as it was originally formed, right? There's this blockage. There's this company saying, we think we can make money out of this. The government has no money. The government is concerned that it's going to lose its AAA rating because of its indebtedness. So why would you not go down that path, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you're now at a point, and I, I haven't been around um, Victorian politics enough to know where, where we are now financially and economically, but if, if people like, I suspect what Kenneth's saying is, you know, Australia is nowhere near as an indebted the, the government is nowhere near as indebted as other countries. Mm-hmm. We're nowhere near losing our credit rating. Plus, the situation with road toll projects is that most companies are turning around and saying, we refuse to take the risk of the traffic volumes. And possibly there's good reason for that. You know, hopefully, from a transport point of view, that's because hopefully we will get less cars driving around. But if a company is coming in and saying, like for example, with East West Tunnel, it was interesting to me that Transurban never bid on East West. Yeah, right. And that's because it didn't meet their business model. Mm. They were saying, you will not get the traffic in the tunnel that will pay for the road and we don't do franchises, right? Now, I don't know whether or not they've changed their tune with with this other tunnel, but basically what they're saying, I think how their model is, is un- if I've understood correctly, what they're saying is it will create enough funneling onto the current CityLink project that they'll get extra. And I also suspect that somewhere in the back, and this is, this is a guess, but from talking to people who are in road projects, one of the things that I know all the toll road operators want is they want to charge trucks more. And if this, if part of the negotiation of this contract is that CityLink get permission to increase the tolls for trucks on the rest of CityLink, mm-hmm. that would be worth their while. Now, I'm, you know, this is an entire speculation. I'm just guessing. If I was running their company, that's one of the things I'd be looking to try to do because the trucks are not paying their way. Right. They do far too much damage to the road, mm-hmm. especially the very large trucks. Yep. So Transurban may be looking for a way to both possibly even upgrade their facilities a bit to help them manage that cost. If that is what they're talking about doing, then it may be that it's quite an intelligent thing for the government to allow them to do in that there is a question with CityLink, taking back CityLink, whether or not you could run that road without it being told, because it's incredibly expensive to run. Mm. After the tunnels blew out, right, the, the problem of the water table in the, around the tunnels has never been resolved. I mean, basically it's been resolved by people pumping water. Every day Transurban spends hundreds of thousands of dollars pumping water out of the tunnels oh. to make sure that they don't 
not not that there's water in the tunnels, but from the rock around the tunnels to make sure they don't leak, right? And that is a cost which was never built into the original plan for how much you were going to get out of the tunnels, right? Heated engineering costs. Well, that that happened because there was, you know, they've made the tunnels elliptical Mm. instead of round. And they did that because they wanted to have four lanes or three lanes running through rather than two. Mm-hmm. And when the water table was re-raised, it buckled this way. Uh, so then they pinned it back down again with 15,000 rods of steel holding it. But that means that the membrane got punctured. So the tunnel is not floating in water. You have to maintain it so that it doesn't float in water. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This week, we have my colleague, Emily Sims, in the hot seat asking the questions of Dr. Sophie Starup. There we are hearing about some of the trials and tribulations of uh, the early days at CityLink, where Dr. Starup uh, worked in Department of uh, Treasury and Finance and uh, was involved in the privatisation of... uh, SEC. Did you think you'd hear an interview like this on 3CR? Well, there we are. We are renegades uh, giving you uh, all sides of the story. Let's go back to the interview. One of the things about CityLink was, you know, just about everything that could have gone wrong construction-wise went wrong. (laughs) And the government didn't pay for any of that. From what I understand, there was at least an extra $500 million of costs out of that project that was not planned for, mm. that's been paid back because the tolls are way oh. more than they expected. That's one of the conditions attached to the Westgate Tunnel is, in fact, a concession on the CityLink tolling and extra mm. e- exit points to the city, which will be very lucrative. That also is another thing that was interesting about CityLink. Originally, the original CityLink contract, Kennett was very clear that it was not about getting people into the city. He made them not. I mean, the only access point was the one at the King's Way. Yep. And he basically said, you know, there will be no other points. They were arguing for them the whole way along. Mm. And he also said, I mean, the, the, the kinds of risks the company took were significant in that he also said there will be no toll booths. Mm. So at the time, there was no traffic camera system running fully electronic tolling running anywhere in the world Mm. right and Transurban took on the risk that they would end up with a road they couldn't toll there was no technology to actually do those tolls they had to develop that technology yeah coming back to that I mean why did Transurban take those kinds of risks at the time Transurban was three people and a bank yeah, there were three people, one of whom was working in Macquarie Bank, and they were just like, okay, we can invent this new program, this new business, and we'll take on these, you know, I mean, they took on enormous risks. I mean, people talk about how much money Transurban's made since then out of CityLink, but the risks they took were enormous. Mm. You know, I mean, they were, they were looking at tunnelling in Melbourne, which yep. is, you know, a disaster. They forecast their tunnelling, right, and they had no idea what they were getting into. They, they sank the first shaft and they were like, holy hell, it's 70 atmospheres of pressure of water in the rock. 
So they made a hole in the rock and water was pouring in. You know, it was like the whole time they were dealing with this rainstorm. It was like working in a rainstorm the whole time because the water was just pouring in out of the rock. I mean, and these problems were completely unforecast. When they sunk the, the pylons for the bridge, they had to go 35 metres down to find rock. <laughs> and, and I suppose that's this is why the Probably government is the, inspired to build more tunnels and do more metro tunnels well, and east, tunnels everywhere. The East Link Tunnel is gonna, was going to cost, I mean, the East-West Tunnel was going to cost what? We're talking about, I think we calculated it out, I can't remember, I mean, $5 billion for the four kilometres or whatever, right? I mean, that's ridiculously expensive. Mm. Like, ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Really. Insanely, like, nobody builds roads at that cost. Like, that is completely mad. Because of the engineering challenges. Part of it, I'm sure, is to do with, you know, the, the, the rock structure, as I understand it, was absolutely terrible. I mean, as I, I've also heard since then that people were talking about potential cyanide poisonings and oh. all sorts of problems with water and not sure what they'd bump into. And, you know, I mean, digging holes in the ground is hugely risky. Yeah. Don't get me started on what happened in Perth. Uh, I, I'm unfamiliar with the Perth case, so. Um, but I mean, it seems to be that the risk um, is paying off for Transurbans in, ter- in terms of it's now somewhat uh, cornered the market here in Australia for tollways and road network. In part, it looks like that. Yeah. Right. But you'll notice they don't get into these roads that re- require franchising. No. They they have not been. They've been stuck to their model, which is. If we can see lots of people want to drive here, we will provide a road and people will pay for it. Mm. That's their model. That's what they did in Boston. It's what they went on. You know, that's that's been their model. Now, I don't know how long they will continue to hold on to that. You know, there's a certain integrity to their model, but I don't know whether or not they'll continue that. And so that's why I'm, I'm not sure what the modelling looks like for this Western Tunnel. But... I wanted to ask you then, say the difference between the model that Transurban uses, uh, their business model, versus the model that the franchising model. Can you explain for our listeners what the difference between those kinds of businesses are? Well, essentially, Transurban doesn't get any payment unless people drive on its road. And how most franchised systems work is... You build the road and you promise to make it available for people to drive on. And in return, you get a payment from the government. So effectively, what the government is doing, in the most simplistic terms, which any economic person will probably murder me for saying, but anyway, I'm not an economist, but basically how it works is I've built this road. As long as it's still sitting there and people could drive on it, I will get paid. Mm-hmm. Right. So in fact, effectively what the government is doing under those contracts, they're, ma- they're making an agreement to pay, I don't know, let's, the, the company borrows a million dollars to build the road mm-hmm. and the government agrees to pay back 200000 a year over four mm-hmm. years to, for that $1 million. Right? I mean, that's, that's basically all that's happening. Basically, it's exactly the same as saying to someone, build my house and I'll pay you the mortgage payments for the house. Very different than the model that Transurban run on. Transurban run on a business model. They say, okay, we think over 35 years that we can make back 
$200 million it costs us to build the road or the $2.6 billion it costs, is going to cost us to build the road. Mm. So we'll build this, this product and we will then sell it every day to the motorists. And if we sell it successfully, then we will get our money back. And if we do not sell it successfully, we will not get our money. And that's mm. a very different model. Now that's a business model. Mm. That's not monopoly franchising in the same way. Now you can argue, obviously, that CityLink is a is a monopoly product mm. because there haven't been a lot of alternatives produced. And you know, you could argue that, well, there used to be alternatives, like for example, Alexandra Parade. You used mm. to be able to drive down Alexandra Parade quite easily. You could go down Pasco Vale Road and down Alexander Parade and it was all good, right? Mm. They've now turned that into, you know, what has happened is Mooney Ponds has basically turned Alexander Parade into a into a Puckle Street or into a into a Ligon Street and it's impossible to drive down there because it's a fifty zone and there's all these wonderful cafes and so on and so forth. Oh, Mount is Alexander. It a good thing? Yeah. I mean is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? My my view is on balance. If motorists have to pay a bit more to drive around and what we get because they're paying more to drive around is more urban fabric that we'd actually want to live in, this is a small cost to pay. But mm. that's my personal view. Um, indeed, it seems to be Infrastructure Australia's view that the best thing that we could do for transport in Melbourne is to adequately price the road network. And I suppose toll roads are a part of that in terms of zippy accessibility. You pay a premium for that, that product. My view is we should probably ban zippy accessibility mm. and create zippy accessibility by networking the public transport system correctly and making our trains go slightly faster than 24 kilometres an hour on average. But, mm. you know, that's another story. One of the crazy things about the Westgate Tunnel is that it's just not on the radar or on the – it's really right down the list of projects that were under yeah. consideration or recommended by Infrastructure Victoria, where the whole strategy has been kind of move the people closer to the places we want to be. Mm. This road really problematises a lot of the uh, urban brownfields development around the city of Melbourne, um, which is something that uh, I want to talk to Crystal about tomorrow if it goes ahead, um, the Westgate yeah. Tunnel. That being said, I think if the Westgate Tunnel could be built, if what happened out of the Westgate Tunnel was that CityLink got permission to toll trucks mm. at a reasonable rate that actually allowed for the recovery of the cost of the road and you didn't allow cars to drive in it and it was about trucks, I mean, mm. that, then I think you're talking about a piece of infrastructure. You know, if the, if the econo economics is right for that, yeah. for a primarily truck-based tunnel, then I think you're starting to talk about a project that might be worth doing because trucks kill people and they're not going anywhere. I mean, mm. unless the government is willing to ban them as they used to, I mean, back in 1982, you couldn't take a B-double on metropolitan roads. But, um, but, you know, having we've lost that battle, I think. We've lost that battle getting them off the roads throughout the whole of the Western area, mm. I think is a, is a project worth doing. But I doubt that the economics is there. I doubt that, you know, it's going to work unless you let, as you say, unless there are all these extra off ramps and that's for cars, that's not trucks. But if you're talking about a truck bypass route mm. that put the trucks in the tunnels, 
that is a project that I can see merit in because they are seriously dangerous. They're killing cyclists on a regular basis. Mm. They prevent people, you know, they, they, Francis Street and other streets in, in Maribyrnong mm. and so on are just, just traffic sewers. So that was part one in this uh, look at the uh, Western distributor and the role of Transurban in uh, these uh, mega projects we have coming through Australia in terms of infrastructure financing. Certainly uh, worth hearing uh, the rationale behind some of these privatisations. I hope you can uh, use that uh, other side of the coin to strengthen your own arguments. You can check out Dr. Sturrup's work on the conversation. As always, the links will be in the show notes. And uh, just to finish off the show, I am super excited. Uh, Loretta's just emailed me the uh, donations. And yes, the Renegades, we have made our Radiothon target of $900. We've actually raised $980. So, uh, yeah, thanks to those donors who've come through in the last few weeks. Tony Abu Jaba, Philip Barron in Parkville, Robert Bryce, uh, Elwood, and a uh, big donation from Peter Wooten in Carnegie. Thanks, Peter. John Worcester and Elizabeth Wilson. All right, thanks to everyone who uh, supported 3CR. I'm sure we're going to keep these airwaves alive so we can all fight for our right to give your perspective on the way the world works.